0: Welcome to the Work Hard, Play Hard podcast. My name is Rob Murgatroyd and I'm a former doctor turned lifestyle entrepreneur. Each week I interview some of the best minds on the planet on the science of achievement and the art of fulfillment. Come take this journey with me. Excuses are over, it's time to live.
1: I remember waking up and looking around the minute I saw the faces of my children I knew that something bad happened or I said something bad or they saw something that broke their heart. The alcohol really is just a symptom. It's the underlying stuff that we bring on from childhood or bring on from trauma that we're numbing out. The alcohol is just the symptom. At the age of 12, I realized that this was not going to be for nothing. This experience that I was facing and all the experiences that were to come were not going to be for nothing. And they can be used not only to heal myself in some way and make me a better person, like my story was not going to define who I was. Five, five.
0: What's up, everybody? This is Rob Murgatroyd, and welcome to another episode of the Work Hard, Play Hard show. This episode features Tracy O'Malley. You can find her on Instagram and elsewhere at Tracy underscore O'Malley. I wanted to have Tracy on the show for so many reasons. She is one of the most kind, honest, and beautiful souls that I know. She has an ability to cut through the bullshit and get to the heart of the matter, we took a deep dive into alcoholism, entrepreneurship, and what it takes to be a million-dollar earner with heart. Before we get into this episode and get ready to learn from Tracy, I want to remind you that my 2019 mastermind is filling up quickly in terms of the applications rolling in. Remember, this is on a first-come, first-serve basis to get your application in line. I do go through them all, and I look for the best fits. Then I set up a phone call and see if it's a great fit between me, you, and the existing group. So if you're interested at all, go to workhardplayhardpodcast.com forward slash mastermind. So who's it for? If you are a six or seven figure entrepreneur who wants to 10X their lives through play, tribe and amazing experiences around the world, this may be the perfect fit for you. We'll be doing one domestic and two international locations in 2019 that I promise will be mind blowing. This is the fastest way that I know to 10X your business, Up level your tribe and get a clear path to grow your business and relationships to the next level. So go to workhardplayhardpodcast.com forward slash mastermind and fill out the mastermind. So what's the mastermind like when you're in it? I'll put you into a group of high level achievers where everybody is at your level or higher. You'll be in three different masterminds throughout the year going to three different locations and becoming a part of what I call an experiential learning environment. I learned best by doing cool things with cool people and not in the back of a Holiday Inn conference room. So I redesigned the entire mastermind concept and I made it a fully immersive experience. I made the long conference room tables and the mints and the water, all of that's gone. So go to workhardplayhardpodcast.com forward slash mastermind and click apply. Okay, in this conversation with Tracy, we talk about everything from what it was like for both of us to grow up with alcoholic dads and how that affected the decisions that we both made in our lives. How she went from zero to making multiple millions in a few years. And we talked about what's missing in her life right now. You can find her on the socials at Tracy underscore O'Malley. Be sure to take a screenshot of this episode, share it on the socials and remember to tag me, and at Tracy underscore O'Malley, and let us know what you thought. If this is your first time here and you have not subscribed, just say, hey Siri, subscribe to the Work Hard, Play Hard podcast. So without further ado, please enjoy this conversation I had with at Tracy underscore O'Malley. Tracy, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, I'm so excited to be here.
0: (laughs) You know, I have to tell you, I have been looking forward to this for some time. and, And here's why. You are an absolute ball of love energy that is so inspiring and contagious to me to be around that I just love having people like you in my life. And I just, I can't wait to dig into more info with you. So, Thanks for making the time to do this with me.
1: Well, I think I've told you this before. I am obsessed with your interview style, first and foremost. I, you know, I've listened to tons of podcasts and I've heard people go on podcast tours and it's like the same questions over and over, just a different host. And I know that you know my love for Howard Stern's interview style. And honestly, next to him, he, he does the best interviews, but next to him, you are absolutely hands down the best interview i've ever heard in my entire life
0: oh that's so true howard is i mean he's a god to me right i mean his ability his ability to get information is just incredible so so thank you for that compliment i think you know what i think a good place for us to start would be in downer illinois do you remember that place
1: Downers Grove, Illinois. Yes, I do.
0: (laughs) All right. So let's talk about that. What did you I'm gonna ask the question a little bit differently. What did you love about growing up there? Like what was your favorite thing about that?
1: Everything was green. Lots of huge big trees. Like you could hear, you know what I loved, you know, when you we said that the first thing that came to mind was when the wind would blow, you could hear all the leaves of the trees. And it was just like this calming, calming place. And at a time, you know, my life was not the most peaceful inside the four walls of our house. So when I was outside, just that peace and calm of the the leaves and the, the I mean, the trees are huge there. They're beautiful. It's, it's a beautiful little town.
0: You know, you are an Irish girl, right? Mm-hmm. So you, if, if uh, those of you who have read the O'Malley name, they know that if that didn't tip it off for you, I'll tell you, <laughs> she's really Irish. So one of the things that can come with Irish families is a lot of great Irish songs and a lot of booze, right? Mm-hmm. So we both share Irish dads. My Murgatroyd is a Welsh name, but the family comes largely from Ireland. So I grew up with a dad that was you know, really connected to the Irish culture. And I don't believe as deeply as you guys were, but we share that. And one of the things that we shared is dads who drank every day. And I think that I'd like to start there because a lot of who you are was shaped during those years. So, you know, your dad was a super functional alcoholic like mine was. My question for you is, how do you think that that impacted your views on alcohol in general?
1: Wow. You know, being born Irish, it was, I mean, it is just part of the norm. I never remember a time in our life, not just in my home, but, you know, extended family and everything was either a celebration, you know, with it. It was, you know, everybody always brought a cooler with them wherever we went. Honestly, I have maybe 10 baby pictures of myself or pictures of myself as a child. That's it, about 10. And the very first one of myself is a beer, me drinking a beer at like about 10 months old. You know, my dad's holding it up to my face. And now, you know, CPS would be called if if that picture got around. But um, it was just always there. So I didn't know any different. But what I did feel from about the age of five on was... My body was telling me something. I, you know, looking back now, I can see this, but I was being triggered in ways like something's not safe, something's uneasy. There's uncertainty here, and I had anxiety from the age of about five or six. My first migraine was in the second grade. I would have anxiety so bad that I would throw up from, you know, the stomach stuff, and I, I obviously at that age I couldn't put a finger on what it was but it was that my dad was very high functioning you know never missed a day of work so it's like okay am i just going crazy am i am i not sure what's happening right now and my mom's way of coping with it was just to shut down shut out you know she pretty much was in bed most of the time so i was kind of left to fend and and figure out how to run this household <laughs> at like the age of 6 and take care of my little sister and, you know, prepare our meals and get us up for school and things like that. And to this day, I hear ice cubes get dropped into a glass and I'm triggered, like physically. I can feel like my body shift because that usually meant the transition was happening from beer to whiskey and the Jekyll and Hyde stuff would start to come out.
0: God, you're giving me chills. I, you know, somebody asked me the other day, if I want, actually, it was our mutual friend, Chris Harder. And he said, you want a beer? And I said, no, I don't drink beer. He said, you don't like it? I said, I've never had one. Mm. He said, dude, you're 52 years old. I said, yeah, the smell of it reminds me of mm. such horrible times with my dad that I've actually never had a beer. And when you said the ice cubes, that triggered that same kind of, it's amazing how we have a visceral response to those kind of things, isn't it?
1: Yeah cuz I remember laying in bed as a child and I would make sure cuz my dad um he was a life insurance agent financial planner so he worked nights a lot of the time and I would lay in bed awake to make sure he made it home safely first of all uh because he usually would make a stop after work and he was a chain smoker too so um I wanted to make sure he made it home first and foremost and then I would lay in bed awake I would hear the ice cubes clink and I'd be like oh boy here we go and then I would kind of like sneak around the house to make sure he didn't fall asleep with a cigarette in his hand. And so the house wouldn't be burnt down. And many nights I would see him passed out at the table with a cigarette in his hand and I would go and put it out. Like all of our furniture, our tables all had like little black cigarette mark burns on it. And, you know, ironically about that story is I loved my dad. Are you kidding me? Like he was everything and all the great things that I am. Are him Um, and I always said I was never going to be like him. And at the age of fifteen is when I took my first drink of alcohol. And you know, back in those days, I know you'll get this because we're close to the same age. Mm -hmm. Everybody was drinking Zima back then, and Mm -hmm. I went for the Southern Comfort right right off the bat. Yep. And my first drinking experience was a blackout, a full blown blackout. And I was like, hmm, maybe I'm a little different. And I, you know, looking back, I can see that was the first sign and i believed i was different cuz i didn't drink every day mm-hmm. and i justified that until i was about 40 and ironically the last 2 years that i drank i was the same one clinking the ice cubes pouring the glass of crown straight up you know just crown on rocks and you know talking to my kids today it's like they have that when they smell whiskey it's It's a, it's a same kind of thing for them. They, they knew that my, it's, it's funny though that you say that about the beer because my daughter doesn't feel like that about me and whiskey. She feels like that about me and blue moon because that was my beer of choice. And so Mm. the memories that she has around me and those times revolve blue moon and my son has those feelings about the whiskey. So it's just, you know, these generational patterns, I'm telling (laughs) you.
0: Oh, it's so fascinating because I can I can remember I can remember as a kid we grew up in New York and uh, we lived near a beach called Rockaway Beach and so in the summertime my dad would take me and I can remember being in the car with him smoking chain smoking Lucky Strikes three packs a day mm-hmm. which eventually led to his death last year uh, of lung cancer but I can remember be sitting in the car you know no seatbelt on me and my two three, three brothers in the back banging around he had a budweiser in one hand lucky strikes in the other hand i mean it was a different time you're right i mean it was totally different but here's the interesting thing i didn't have a sip of alcohol until i was 30 wow nothing not one, i made up for it after that <laughs> i didn't have a sip of alcohol until i was 30 so you know i think we all we all respond differently you know based on based on our circumstances what i wanted to ask you is when you grew up As a kid in, you know, an alcoholic house, you tend to unconsciously, I suppose, become an enabler. So how did doing things like placing your hand at the edge of the, you know, the car seat, ready to pop his head up if he Mm. dozed off when he was driving, affect you later in life?
1: Oh, you just like I can't I didn't remember telling you that story. It was terrifying. Like, it was terrifying that, you know, propping myself behind behind the wheel of a car to make sure we didn't get taken out. You know, how it affected me is my need to control everything and, you know, to place myself in as much certainty as possible and to protect everything and to be perfect. It consumed me for many decades, just that... Because it might, you know, when you don't have certainty and safety under your own roof, which is where it should be most more than anywhere, you will go to work to have some sort of control over anything outside of that. Because mm-hmm. we 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 have that, you know, one of the human needs is certainty and uncertainty. I had a very unhealthy level of uncertainty in my life. So I was trying to balance out the scale there um, in the other areas of my life. And you know, the health problems and the the social things. Like I became a chameleon to any situation. It was great because I could be friends with everybody. You know, I could be one of the guys. I could be, you know, the girl with the lip gloss. I could be, you know, a, a friend. I could be a badass. I could be whatever. And and eventually, you know, I was like, I don't even know who the hell I am. I really had no idea who, who Tracy was. I could be anything you wanted me to be. And it was just very soulless. I felt very empty a lot of the time. Um, I had an unhealthy relationship with food from the age of six, um, because obviously at six, you're not leaning on alcohol to to comfort. And because my mom wasn't present, my dad was whatever he was, uh, depending on the day. And my sister was a hot mess, causing all sorts of wreckage in the house. So all the attention was going there. And I really didn't have much of comfort. So that's when I started leaning on food and hiding food. And, you know, sugar became a big, huge, you know, like crack for me at, at a very early age. And, you know, everything was just chaos all the time. And my brain would never shut off. I never slept through the night, honestly. My, my sleep was very choppy, if, if at all. And um, yeah, it was It was a mess. It was a mess. But here's the thing, Rob, on the outside, I was the perfect kid. Nobody even thought twice that anything was going on inside of me. And I worked hard to protect that image because there was so much chaos. The last thing they needed to do was worry about me, right? And I think that so often that happens, you know, I I have a child that's just like me and I was very aware that, you know, this really good kid also does need nurturing and check-ins and to be heard because I never
0: was. You know, you are you're singing my tune in so many ways like I'm sitting here nodding with everything you're saying because I lived so much of this and you know generally I don't share much about me in podcast interviews because I want it to be about the guest, but this show's a little different for me because I want people who are in situations that are similar to this to perhaps recognize what they may be bringing from their childhood into now their adulthood with their children. But I resonate with a lot of what you're talking about because I too was a chameleon. I too became, became focused on control. And it's interesting to me, you know, how growing up in that environment teaches you to read, you know, situations as well, like you were talking about. I think I'm good at that too. You and I both share a love for, for Tony Robbins, as do a lot of people. And one of the things that he said is that the strongest desire in the human psyche is our need to remain consistent with our identity. How do you think having the identity of an Irish girl that can drink you under the table has shaped you?
1: Wow. The Irish are very prideful as well. <laughs> and... Um, I am so proud of my heritage. I mean, if you had told me even 10 years ago that this feisty Irish girl would all of a sudden be a vegan, sober yogi, I would have laughed at you and called you an asshole. Like there is a lot of loyalty and pride. And, you know, as dysfunctional as we are, a lot of times we're equally as loving and loyal and the laughter, like you can walk into a room and know if it's filled with Irish people, just (laughs) by the, by the fricking storytelling and the laughter. And, you know, my, my family is incredible. And we we're all, we all have dysfunction and it, it was hard for me to go back home, you know, back into Chicago, the Chicago area for quite some time after I decided to get sober, because I hadn't gotten a grasp on standing true to who Tracy was. And, you know, environment is way stronger than willpower in any situation. And my environment of home, as I knew it, I knew I couldn't be in that situation and stand strong in my identity today in those early days of sobriety. So if I did go back, it'd be like no more than 48 hours you know, having myself a safe place, and it wasn't that I was trying to avoid anything. It's I was just trying to protect what I'm working so hard at, and not in judgment, and and not, in, you know, I can only take my own inventory. Um, but it's been the last three or four years that I can go back and and be very observant, and I noticed you do this too, like people that grew up like we did. We we are very aware, we can, we can see 10 different conversations going on and we can read by the faces what, what is being said or the energy that's happening there. Or if there is fear going on, we can smell fear a mile away. And, you know, as Irish and, you know, the thing that I remember as a child, like everybody was always like, thank God it's Friday. You know, we grew up in those times where everybody worked 40 hours a week and had, you know, like the nine to five and, it wasn't like serial entrepreneurs like it is today, but, you know, thank God it was Friday was being said. And I remember being in school on Fridays and dreading it because I knew all hell was going to break loose, you know, from Friday night to Sunday morning when the dust would be settling, it was very, Mm. and you know, all the Irish would get, all my family would get together and there would usually be, you know, a parking lot brawl between my dad and one of his brothers and, it was just, it was just nuts. It was nuts. And, you know, when I, when I decided to get sober, like I never, I could have never imagined my life without alcohol. Not that I like loved it or anything. It's just, it was part of that Irish identity, right?
0: Yeah, for sure. You know, you hit a point where you recognized as you're discussing now, I'm just thinking about this. You hit a point where, you knew that your drinking became unmanageable mm-hmm. and there were a few times when your kids had to clean you up, get you out of bed. And then you hit a point where you hit thresholds and you said, that's it. I, I can't do this anymore. Can you walk me through what you were feeling in June of 2012 when you walked into AA for the first time?
1: You know, which is so ironic, you know, when you're kind of a control freak and you like to control everything around you, when you wake up out of a blackout, that is the most um, fearful moment of your life because you don't remember what happened. And that for, for a control freak, that is like worst case scenario. Right. And I remember like waking up and looking around and the minute I saw the faces of my children, I knew that something bad happened or I said something bad or they saw something that broke their heart, right? And I remember that feeling so clearly, like the walking on eggshells every day, the anxiety. My son had physical manifestations of anxiety. He used to twitch so bad people thought he had Tourette's. He didn't sleep at night. And I didn't want that for them. And I used to justify that it wasn't unmanageable because I didn't do it every day. If you asked me to quit for 30 days, it wasn't an issue because the alcohol really is just a symptom, right? It's, it's the underlying stuff that we bring on from childhood or bring on from trauma that we're numbing out. The alcohol is just the symptom. And so I used to justify that the alcohol isn't a problem. And until I looked at my kids and realized that I was about to repeat what I lived, I did not want that for them. And I knew that they would start coping like I did. And I didn't want this generational pattern to continue. There's many things about my heritage and my upbringing that was amazing. I mean, I'm the girl I am today because of my dad. He was an amazing man and teacher. And I knew I could bring those things to the table with a healthier uh, home and those lessons would stick a lot better if I was, you know, earning their respect. So in in June of 2012, I walked into AA because I had had enough. Those blackouts became more frequent. I still wasn't an everyday drinker. I didn't have to pour it into Gatorade or orange juice in the morning. It wasn't like that at all. It was when um, things got quiet or I was in social situations, which I didn't love. I was in the car industry at the time, which was super stressful, especially being a woman. Um, when the ratio is about a 1,000 to 1. And mm-hmm. I just didn't want that for them anymore. And they were 14 and 15 at the time, a very pivotal moment. And um, I just decided enough was enough. And I walked into AA and I, I was going to the meetings and I still wanted to hold on to a little bit of control. So I didn't get a sponsor. And But I was doing the meetings and I felt some relief. It was like the pressure, the pressure was being taken off a little bit um, and literally three weeks later, I received a call from my dad saying, um, cancer had pretty much taken over his entire body and they didn't give him much time. And that not much time was, uh, three weeks to three months at that point. So it was three weeks sober when that happened.
0: Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's interesting. How do you feel now? I don't know really how to phrase this question, but I think you'll, you'll, Understand the place it's coming from. How do you feel now that your dad is gone? What level, what level of emotion? What's going through you? Because I know that I'm feeling all kinds of stuff because it's still new to me. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there was a lot of negative, but there was also a lot of positive, and there's this there's this mix of emotion between mm-hmm. the two. How do you how do you process that?
1: Well, I've never, you know, I, I'm sure you've seen it too. When somebody dies, all of a sudden you know, they're put up on this pedestal like they were amazing. And <laughs> my dad was amazing. And he was, as, as amazing as he was, he was equally the biggest asshole in the world. Like really, he was a dickhead a lot of the time. Yep. And, you know, I'm all about living my truth. I mean, I'm an amazing person too, but I can be an asshole as well. We all can, right? You know, I, I just tell it like it is. And my dad wouldn't want it any other way. He was like the modern time Archie Bunker, like literally no filter, He looked just like him. But how I feel about my dad today is, you know, things will happen. I used to get annoyed because every conversation with him was a lesson from the time I was born. You know, he wanted a boy. And when I was born a girl, he told the doctor the day I was born to just keep me because he didn't want me. And it was a joke. And it was a joke that was told over and over and over again. And you know, I get it logically as an adult and, um, but there was a lot of laughter at my expense. And I remember carrying that around with me as a little girl. So it's probably why I love sports so much. It's, I had a blue room for six years and, you know, I knew the starting lineup of every sports team in Chicago by the time I was three. And, you know, how I feel about my dad today is like, I wish he could see what I've done. He knew, I remember the best conversation Rob I had with him of my entire life was Father's Day, uh, June 17th of 2012. It was a week before I was told he was dying. And it was the most beautiful conversation I've ever had. He knew I was not drinking and we had a real honest conversation about that. And he was beautiful and he was soft and it was the most truthful I had ever been with him without trying to be perfect to impress him or to get that, that validation that I was good enough. Like for some reason, I just knew I was in that moment. And I knew I was, I was the apple of his eye. And, and so, you know, it's been six years now and I never feel sad. I wish he was here to see my kids and to see how much my son is quirky like him and see (laughs) that those lessons I used to roll my eyes about, I've paid forward, not just in my home, but with people that I talk to every day. I also do know this, and I've said it, and it's true. I I don't believe I would be where I'm at if he was still alive because I would have tried so hard to maintain that perfect kid. I wouldn't have stepped out into uncertainty like I have. I wouldn't have taken the risks that I have. Um, I probably would have remained a chameleon because after 40 years, that's that's a hard pattern to break without a lot of extensive work. And, you know, I, I remember about six months after I got sober, saying really honestly, like, I believe that my dad's life was sacrificed so I could really have mine.
0: You know, it's interesting. First of all, your dad, I'm very, very clear on, well, I can't prove this, but (laughs) he's watching every single thing that you're doing. You know, I want to fast forward a little bit to the space that you're now in, Mm -hmm. which is very different. Mm -hmm. And as I said in the intro, you are truly, and this is no bullshit, you just are. You're one of the most kind, supportive people I know. You're willing to be vulnerable and open. Are there any particular teachers that you can point to that have really impacted your growth? Mm,
1: Oprah. Oprah. Yeah, this is a great story, Rob. You know, because I grew up in Chicago. That's where she got her start. I don't know if you knew that. I did. I was 10 years old. It was 1982 and there was a TV show called AM Chicago. And this was before anybody knew who Oprah was. She was like it was like the Chicago version of the Today show. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they did the the silly bits and the cooking segments and things like that and you know, this this Oprah chick pops up on the TV and she doesn't look like everybody else. She's not that pretty polished, you know, Barbie doll looking person. And I was just drawn to her. And I didn't know what it was. She had an amazing laugh, but there was this vulnerability about her, even though it was just silly cooking show bits and stuff. But I was drawn to her and I didn't understand why. But you know, when I was getting ready for school in the morning, that's just what I would have on. And two years later, that same Afro-wearing Oprah chick got a syndicated TV show called The Oprah Winfrey Show. And so at that point I was 12 and it was at a time in my life where my household, like it was from the age of 10 to when my parents divorced at 19, it was, it was awful. So the Oprah Winfrey show started when I was 12. And so I would record it on a VCR every day because it started, yeah, because it started at nine o'clock. And so I would be at school. And so every day I would come home and watch it. And I wasn't just watching it. I was studying her because I could see something. She would laugh and smile, but I could see pain in her eyes. And it wasn't right away, but very quickly, she started to talk about, you know, she obviously had a weight issue. And she was really unpacking in her own life what that was about. And she started to talk about the pain she endured as a child. And all of a sudden, it clicked for me like, my pain is not going to be for anything. And I'm watching her help and heal people because of what she endured. And I studied her from the day, like from that moment until now, I study her. I mean, we're different people and and she's a lot softer than I am in a lot of ways. Um, But at the age of 12, I realized that this was not going to be for nothing. This experience that I was facing and all the experiences that were to come were not going to be for nothing. And they can be used not only to heal myself in some way and make me a better person. Like my story was not going to define who I was. And even though I went out and tried really hard to validate that that's who I was, um, God had a bigger plan for me and a bigger message for me to carry and that He doesn't waste pain for those that are willing to do the work. And so Oprah was probably my greatest teacher early on.
0: She's, I mean, she's just incredible. Mm-hmm. We can talk for, for hours <laughs> about that woman for sure. Yeah. If you look over the last few years, um, have there been any beliefs, habits, or tools that have really helped you in life other than what we've mentioned? Or are there any limiting beliefs that you got rid of that is now helping you?
1: Well, I believe that, you know, like what you said earlier about the things, you know, the trauma that we faced and, you know, the word trauma, you know, people hear that and they think of a car crash and it doesn't have to be that. I mean, the, the running joke of me as a child, you know, oh, keep them both. I don't want her. Like that was a joke, but that was trauma. That was a trauma for me from the day I was born. And the belief system that came from that joke from the very day I was born was that, I am not good enough and I'm not worthy. He didn't want me. And that is the one that is the hardest to break, probably because it's been around the longest. And when we build a belief system as a child, I mean, you have a, a, is Sophia four, right?
0: She'll be four next week.
1: Right. So, I mean, if you think about Sophia hearing something like that about herself today, like logically as a 46 year old woman, I get that it was a joke, but as a four year old Sophia, trying to hear that and understand what that really means is that like we don't, they don't under, they take things literally. We take things literally as children and build a belief system off that. And then we go and try and be adults. And we're like, well, where the hell is this belief system coming from? Because logically in my intellectual brain, I know I'm good enough. I know I'm worthy. We're all beautiful and worthy. Um, But to really go back and heal those trauma incidents that happened before we're 10, I believe that's where a lot of our belief systems come um, they show up in different wrapping paper as adults, um, but they still, they still creep up. And that one is a big one for me that I still face. You know, she sneaks up on me. And for so long, Rob, you know, I call her little Tracy would show up and I would just try to shut her up so much so like she was as a child, you know, I was better seen than heard. And, and when that belief system would try and creep up and cause chaos in my adult life, I would just shut her down or numb her out. It's why people are numbing the shit out of themselves, right? Because we want to shut down that that little girl, that little boy that was traumatized and doesn't know how to handle it. And so going back and healing that, instead of numbing her out, I put her on my lap, you know, so to speak, and embrace her, let her know I'm okay. We can't change the past. We can't change who our parents are. We can't change any of that. However, we can reprogram... Our belief system by honoring and reparenting ourselves. And you know, it's it that one creeps up on me from time to time. So what I did out of those 10 pictures I have as a child, there's one picture in particular that is so just poignant. Like if you just crop in on me as a child, it like I look like Sophia. I should send you the picture. I was really freaking mm-hmm. cute. I think that's why I'm so drawn to that little girl. <laughs> she is just like love, like, she's everything I wish my childhood was. I think that's what it is about her. But I, I keep this picture of me as my lock screen on my phone because we have our phones with us all the time. And every time I feel that feeling of not being good enough or not worthy or like the who the hell do I think I am kind of chatter that can come up from time to time. All I have to do is touch my phone and, and my little picture shows up. And every time I want to say those things to myself, I look at that face and it would be like you looking at Sophia. It's like, would I ever say that to her? Like, no, of course not. And so I remember that it's her that's scared. It's not me. And so I really work hard to honor little Tracy that fought so hard to get here that that kept me safe in ways. And I let her know that those ways don't have to keep us safe anymore And I've got us and reparent her and love her and let her come out and dance around like Sophia does.
0: I love that because you're interrupting the pattern and you're rewriting the story. You're just making the new story. Mm -hmm. That's absolutely incredible. What are some things that you do that people disagree with you on or think are crazy?
1: Mm, So much. Um, I tell the truth at all times and that isn't always politically correct or comfortable um, I can make a social situation uncomfortable pretty quick with vulnerability. I can get through the bullshit pretty quickly even I, I don't like small talk very much and so I like to qualify a conversation with a hard question and some people are like taken back by that. I you know i I really don't stand in judgment of people too much. Um, that's a habit that I have to really catch myself on I I call it something else, but if I'm being truly honest, it's me being Judge, judge Judy over here sometimes. I take my own personal inventory every day. Um, I remove myself from situations, even if what's expected of me is to be there. I'm like, you know what? My body is telling me it's time to go, so we're going to go. Um, I just live in truth every day, and and I'm realizing very, very much so that that's not the norm. <laughs> People are so filtered and... Chameleons, and I'm not like, and I I realize when I look at people, my like, I have compassion for them. I don't feel sorry for anybody because it's just a choice. You can choose at any moment to do it differently, but I know that the resistance that comes when you change the rules of the dance, the people that love you most give you the most resistance. I mean, I faced it. My whole family back east looks at me like, who the hell are you sometimes? Mm-hmm. And and I get that. It makes people uncomfortable because it's either a reflection of who they want to be and they wish they could do it. They wish they had the strength to do it, which they can. It's a choice. Or it's like I'm stirring stuff up in them that they, they just want to keep stuff down or numbed out.
0: You know, I think that's the reason why people are so attracted to you. As I'm listening to you, I'm thinking about, you know, we're both in the same network marketing company. And there was a time a few years ago before we were friends where you were just a figure that was on stage. And that world was sort of new to me. And you were speaking at one of the events and there was, I don't know, probably 10,000 people in the audience. And, you know, this woman walks on stage and I see... Oh, what has to be a hundred or more people run with signs mm-hmm. to the front of the stage with your name on it, and my first reaction was, "Who the fuck is this woman? <laughs> like, like what? Like wh- what? Like what's going on here?" And you proceeded to tell a very, very honest version of what your life was like up until that point in a way that most people would never, ever be willing to do in a setting like that. And you did such an honest version of your life that I think people intuitively, there's a relatability factor that they have in their own life. And I think you just do that so well. So I just, I want to give that to you because I know that sometimes when you're in it, you're in it and you don't even see it but mm-hmm. that's what i saw sitting in the audience and i didn't know you so what a beautiful mm-hmm. what, what a beautiful thing to have
1: you know i i used to think that also the way i grew up if you were vulnerable you were perceived as weak you know if you cried you were weak and i saw obviously in my early days in recovery and i continue to see in recovery that that vulnerability that taking a personal inventory that living your truth is actually really a huge strength and not just for yourself, but I saw like how, you know, one of the promises of Alcoholics Anonymous, it's, I remember sitting in rehab that day and looking at this, the, I mean, the sign on the wall where the promises of AA They're, it's my favorite 80, page 83 and 84 in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous list these. And I remember reading them my, my first week in rehab, and bawling because I was like, there's no way that that's possible for a girl like me. Like, there's no way. No way. And the one that I hold on to every day, it's day—it's—it's so beautiful. It says, no matter how far down the scale we, will, we have gone, we will see how our experience can benefit others. And I learned that. And because I would listen to people and their stories, and they were far well-advanced than I was at that moment. And I could see how they were making an impact on my life. And so I just carried that, you know, we practice these principles in all of our affairs. That's part of recovery. We practice these principles in all of our affairs, just doing it in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous or any other recovery program is useless if you're not sharing that, those principles with everything you do. So I carried those principles, not just in my recovery, but in my parenting, in my relationships in my business. And although it did look very, very easy, it was, um, but I was doing this internal work that made everything else easier. And I think that's where people get kind of screwed up. They hire this coach and that coach and that coach to fix all this exterior stuff, which is really important. And it's great to have good habits and patterns and systems and tools and all that. But if this internal rage is going on and you're silencing it, it's eventually going to wipe out all that work anyway at some point or you're going to be left unfulfilled. And so I just carried that message into everything I did and when I started in that network marketing company, I just pretty much brought my recovery into anybody that crossed my path because if I if I'm being honest, I had cleaned house of my entire social network. When I started a network marketing company, it sounds like a really great time to start a network networking <laughs> yeah. business when you have no network because I had to get I had to change all my playmates. You know, your your environment is stronger than your willpower. And so for me to maintain a beautiful level of recovery, it meant I needed to change my environment and play on different playgrounds. So yeah, that moment was like I walked out, I had 500 people of my own organization at that event. And when I saw that sign, like I knew no matter how far down that scale I had gone, my experience is benefiting not just the people with the signs, but the people that watch that day, the people that come up to me today. And it's, it's so beautiful though. They, they never come to pick my brain, which is great about business, but they, they thank me for going first with vulnerability and showing them that that is actually strength. Instead of weakness, and um, for giving them permission to do it too,
0: yeah, yeah, absolutely. What a beautiful thing! You know, talking about playing in uh, different playgrounds. This show is work hard, play hard. So I want to talk. I want to talk a little bit about the play hard part of your life. You know, most entrepreneurs they're super driven. Uh, they don't take the time to play, and playing does not have to be champagne spraying in Saint-Tropez, although it could be, Mm -hmm. it could be something as simple as getting to that book that you've always wanted to get to. So I want to talk to you a little bit about some of the areas of your life that have nothing to do with work. Mm -hmm. If you could spend a month anywhere in the world, where would it be and why?
1: You know, I just got back from Alaska. You know, I would like to go anywhere that there is culture and people to talk to and beautiful scenery and no cell service or electronics, honestly. Anywhere there's none of that, like none of the electronic stuff that disconnects us from the human spirit. I just love people. I really, really do. And and hearing stories, I, I you know, I love to tell stories and I love to hear stories about I'm fascinated with the human mind and finding out where people came from and and finding out their fears. But, you know, you, this play hard thing, you know, as a child, I didn't play at all. I really, really didn't. And I had an uncle that from time to time would remove me from our house and let me just be a kid, whether it just was to see a movie. I remember seeing one movie at a movie theater as a child and it was with him. Um, So playing was a very hard thing for me to do. And when I had children, I remember, like looking at them, like this is, this is like, like I wanted to play with them and I wasn't sure how. And my ex-husband was really great at it. And so I'm drawn to people that have fun. My daughter, I'm obsessed with the Enneagram. It's a personality test. And like my daughter is like that free spirited child and she still is as a 21 year old. So I'm drawn to people like her, like you, that our love and laughter and you all make me uncomfortable because you force me to have fun. And I love <laughs> it. Like, I don't need more of me around, you know, I don't need more of me in my life. I need more of people like you and those that force me. So like when I have fun, it's like running around outside with my dogs or laughing with my children, you know, again, with no electronics, just sitting around a fire or, a you know, a kitchen table talking and storytelling. And because it, you know, when my dad was taking his last breaths, there were no regrets of, you know, things that he wished he did. You know, he he just wished he had more time to spend with the people he loved. And so I am on a mission to just meet as many beautiful humans as I can and spend time. I, I could care less about things and clothing and fancy purses, like give me all the experiences in the world because that that is where it's at. It's experiences and people and and connection and contribution. That is like my love language right there.
0: Oh, yeah. You're not going to remember the Fendi or Gucci bag on your deathbed, but you are going to remember the moment where you mm-hmm. just laughed so hard that, you know, mm-hmm. you like mm-hmm. farted. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's so What's great. What's the one thing that you've always wanted to learn, but you just haven't gotten around to yet?
1: Oh, my God. I'm the worst dancer ever. I, oh,
0: me too. We can dance terribly together.
1: And now that I don't have alcohol, like that makes it even harder. Because <laughs> I used to dance and not give a shit before, but now I'm like, damn right. it.
0: But you look, but you look like it, right?
1: Yeah, like I'm Elaine from Seinfeld. <laughs> it's, it's not pretty. Um, I would like to take a hip hop class um, with my daughter. My daughter, like, she's got moves, and I just look at her. I just like, oh my god, she's the most beautiful human. She reminds me so much of Sophia too. Just that walks in a room and just lights it up. And yeah, dancing would probably be it. Because that's so, I love it. I'm obsessed with people that can dance. I love it.
0: The average life expectancy is about 76 years old, give or take for industrialized nations. So if you're 40, we have roughly 26 summers left to get everything done on our bucket list. How do you think about that?
1: You know, um, last year I was faced with my own mortality. And I really didn't think I would make it to 2018 if I'm being completely honest. And I'd come a long way um, before then and experiencing something like that, you know, that life is too short. I experienced that when my dad died, like his cancer diagnosis was a, a very solid 12 days and that life is too short came and smacked me upside the head with that moment. However, that being said, I believed that for other people. I never kind of like believed in my own mortality that that could be happening. Cause I was only 44 at the time, but when I was faced with it last year, it shifted perspective real fucking quick. Like, Holy shit. Like, yeah. Holy shit. There's so much more I want to do and say with my kids and no, there's a life to be lived. And for somebody that tries to control a lot and is scared and, you know, I'm working on some stuff like, okay, enough with this. And that honestly made me join a mastermind. I had three things on my list when I knew I was going to live. It was join a mastermind and surround myself with people that could uplevel me and I could add value to them, Like that's because I knew I would bring something to the table. So that was that. And the whole story around that is amazing how that came to fruition. I was going to go to Lori Harder's event and surround myself with women because I used to perceive them as weak. And I knew that that was a bullshit story. And I needed strong women in my life. And the third thing was join a local networking group and have friends, like, and business people that weren't network marketers necessarily, you know, in my life. And You know, that was amazing too, because I'm, you know, meeting new people and having experiences. Because honestly, if I'm being truthful, I could live in my beautiful house with my dogs on my acre. I've got a gym at my house, a pool in my yard, and everything I, I could ever want here. And experiencing that last year wanted me to get out and live even more, even though I was. I mean, I'd traveled a little bit, but not like, no, like I need to go to Ireland and spend a month there and go to Greece and and go to places and and do things and meet people and like facing your own mortality. I I believe I've got a good 30 years left in me. And I want to be a grandma one day and and be the fun grandma and teach them the lessons that I was taught and and just watch my children break the generational patterns that we have and grow a family without the dysfunction like I had. I mean they'll have their own dysfunction, I'm sure, but you know, just really raise good people that make a difference in the world and um, see that through. I would love to see that through.
0: It's so easy to get caught up in working and not recognizing all of those things, Mm -hmm. but that clock is ticking.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. I want to do a rapid fire round with you. And I want you to just answer these as quickly or as slowly as you like. It's basically a first thing that comes to mind round. Mm -hmm. What would your friends say is one of your superpowers?
1: That I can read minds.
0: (laughs) What's one of the things you're afraid of right now? Nothing. What keeps you up at night? Nothing. What do people never ask you but wish they did?
1: How I did it and how I do it every day.
0: What's the one thing that you want to get better at?
1: No, besides dancing. (laughs)
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, Getting out of the house more. Getting out of the house more.
0: What audiobook or written book have you reread or re-listened to the most?
1: Besides the big book of Alcoholics Besides Anonymous, the book, yeah. um, mm-hmm. yep. there's a book, and I'm gonna tell you a quick little story about the book. It's called The Energy Bus by John Gordon. And when I was in the car industry, I was a cancer in my office. I was really good at what I did, but I was an asshole. Like I pretty much thrived on people walking on eggshells around me. And the marketing director at the time at that, job, came and dropped a book on my desk and I picked it up and I read it. And it was obviously some kind of, you know, woo-woo personal development shit. And I was not into it back then. This is about 10 years ago. And I looked at it and I just kind of threw it on my desk in front of her. I'm like, this is bullshit. I'm not reading this. And I threw it in my desk. And, you know, two years later, after my dad died and I resigned and was walking into rehab the next day, I packed up my desk and put this box of my desk in my closet Fast forward two years after that, when I was moving out of that house and packing up my house, I ran across this old box of my old desk. And covered in dust was this book, The Energy Bus. And I picked it up, and it, you know, like I said, it was covered in dust. So I had to brush it off a little bit. And I flipped it over and read it through different lenses this time. And I immediately sat on the floor of my closet and read it from cover to cover in two hours and sobbed the entire way through it because it was very clear the message she was trying to say. And it's a beautiful book. I have used it and probably sold thousands of it. Um, I've shared it with the world. I think it's a beautiful book. There's a children's version of it as well. And um, that is the book that I share over and over and over
0: again. It's a great book for any part of life. love it. Yeah. We're going to link to it. What is the one thing that you own and probably should throw out, but you never will?
1: Mm, you know, the last two moves I've had, I've put a 40-yard dumpster in my driveway and just thrown everything out. So honestly, I, I get rid of things. I get rid of things.
0: Hmm. It's another thing you and I have in common. Yeah. My wife said you would get rid of the walls. I would. if They weren't. <laughs> yeah. I'm same. I'm over it interesting. If you had to give a TED Talk on nothing that you're known for, or nothing that you speak about, and it could be on anything you want or anything that you have a passion for, what would it be?
1: <laughs> probably, I'm kind of known for my love of rescue animals and pit bulls specifically, but probably Howard Stern, the history of Howard Stern and why, he's, hist- and why he's amazing and why like he is the most beautiful soul in a lot of ways i mean aside from what he talks about sometimes like he is the epitome of just like trying to figure out who he is live and in person on the radio for gosh i've been listening to him for 30 years so probably 40 years i I just i'm fascinated by that man i am
0: yeah me too i used to listen to him on the am radio because i grew up Mm. in new york and he had a uh a radio show on WNBC.
1: WNBC.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I still listen to him. Uh, did you see his Netflix Ugh. interview with um, Letterman?
1: It was so, so good.
0: Amazing, right? And
1: it's been fun to watch him grow as a human being, as a father, as a husband, the second time around, as a son to, gosh, 90-year-old parents. And I just, I I love his willingness to just like talk about it and he was doing it long before it was popular to talk about vulnerability and you know people slap a label on him that he's you know this shock jock asshole but he's really a big softy and and i love him i do
0: oh yeah i mean when you listen to what his children have done he's got a -hmm. daughter that's a rabbi i mean you would never think that that would be the case with him but yeah Okay, so two more questions. The next one is a surprise ask me anything round. Let's change it up a little bit. What one question do you want to ask me?
1: Where are we going for your mastermind next year? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I tell you
0: what, I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to keep that a secret because we are um we are in talks right now, and I don't want to share any of those places because it blows the surprise. The mastermind that you and I are in, because I'm friends with the guy who runs the thing, Mm -hmm. I know what's going on. And every time I walk into one of the places (laughs) and I know where we're going, I could see everybody else enjoying it Mm -hmm. so much more than me because Mm -hmm. it's a surprise for them. So I'm going to keep it a surprise. All
1: right, then my other question is, as a father of an almost four-year-old over the age of 50... And I know you've Mm -hmm. got an older daughter as well. So parenting the second time around, what is the thing you've learned the most?
0: It's a great question. To not be bullshitted by them. Mm. And what I mean by that is there's something with a father-daughter relationship that allows them to hit your buttons and allow them to get away with murder. And there were, there were times when I remember Demi when she was you know, 14, 15, 16 years old that would be in her room crying and or she would be lying to me about something. And my wife would say to me, okay, I'll give you a great example. There was a time where my wife said to me, you know, Demi's smoking pot, right? And I was like, she's not smoking pot. She's like, oh, she's smoking pot. And I was like, Kim, you are just being way, way, way just out of line. And this is not true and blah, blah, blah. And I couldn't take it anymore. And I went, you know what? Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to go across the street and we live in the city. So uh, the grocery store is right across the street and I'm going to get a drug test. And I didn't even know it existed, but it does. Mm -hmm. And I walked into the grocery store and I got a test and I said, okay, I need you to prove to me because I had asked her if she was, and she said no, she's not. Um, she's and Kim said she was smoking pot last night, so it'll be in her system. And I said, go in the room, go in the bathroom, pee, come out with the pee, and I'm gonna test it. And it came back, and it tested. She tested positive for THC, mm-hmm. and it was in that moment that I knew that I had blinders on to the truth because of this deep love that I had for her. And while I still have the deep love for Sophia, obviously, this time around, I recognize that I need to have a double check for what I think is true and what isn't true, and that double check happens mm-hmm. to be my wife mm-hmm. so this time around i am I am not as blinded by the pigtails that mm-hmm. I was in the beginning. And this is not, this is to serve her better by being able to parent her and not just accepting everything that she's saying. So in other words, I look at things much more closely this time around. And as a result, I recognize that I am her parent and I'm not her friend. And I tried to be too much of a friend to the first one.
1: Well, as an outsider looking in and as, and as a parent myself, I want to tell you that, and I know you already know this because of that. And and I was a hard parent. They've thanked me for it today, and you're you're helping to make Sophia an outstanding human being and one that will contribute more than just beautiful laughter to the world. Because oh my goodness, that girl is so cute. But um, it's it's hard when we're parents. We feel that guilt. Like we feel like we don't want, especially coming from what we have come from. We don't want them to. Like look at our parents, like you're an asshole. Like when they're a grown up or or have these problems that they carry with us that are our fault. So it's just easier to just give in to them. And I think that we actually are doing them a huge favor by calling a spade a spade and be like, call them bullshit on you right now just and
0: call them bullshit on you. Yeah,
1: and they appreciate it. Maybe not so much when they're four, but when they're twenty four. If they come around.
0: Tracy, this has been absolutely awesome. Do you have any final words, suggestions, or an ask for the people that are listening?
1: I would love for y'all to follow me on Instagram at Tracy underscore omalley. Um, I would love to get to meet some of you guys. Just reach out, say hello, share this podcast, share Rob with the world. He's amazing. Amazing. So if any of my friends and my peeps are are listening to this, please fill, you know, you gotta listen to Rob. He's amazing amazing
0: thank you and we'll we'll link up to everything um and i will give a proper introduction with all of your handles at the front end of this episode so tracy thank you so much
1: i appreciate you so much rob love you
0: all right thanks for listening if you love this episode and you know someone that needs some help in either stepping up their work hard game